Turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 18. While you're doing that, I'm going to get my water because I know I'll need it shortly. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to be. I am so thankful this morning that we had a child dedication. I love child dedications. I love baptisms. During these events, the Lord wrings my heart so much my eyes leak. I don't understand it. But here's why. It's believers, families, coming before God, making a covenant with God before the church body, his body, to follow him in obedience. That's what's beautiful about this. It's the body in action, the affirmation that we will support these families in the bringing up of this child. That's what the body is supposed to be about. It's the willingness to come alongside. And that's the subject of the message this morning in Matthew chapter 18. It's life in the body, in the body of Christ. It's about how the church is to live out their walk in Christ. You might find this passage that I'm going to read kind of unusual to speak about this. But hopefully today you'll understand why. Let's read this passage of scripture starting in Matthew, uh, verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly. I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. You know, I first got into this passage when I was teaching a focus group on misused passages of Scripture. And I was focusing on verse 20 at that time. Everybody thinks that's about prayer. It's not. It's about this passage of scripture, which is commonly referred to as the church discipline passage. These five verses are Jesus' instructions to his followers, followers on how to confront and deal with sin in his church. He shows us that protecting his church from sin is of the highest priority to him. But what is often overlooked in this passage is that in reality, this passage is about love and compassion. It's about our Lord's desire for unbroken fellowship with his children those that he has called unto himself. Confronting someone in the body of Christ that is sinning against the body is commanded by Jesus. It's here. 
But the goal is not punishment. We have to understand the goal is correction and restoration. If all that we see in this passage, as, as many veteran Christians have, is that this is about discipline, this is about kicking someone out of the church, we've missed the message. We've missed the entire point of this passage. We've missed the context of the message that he has for his bride, the church. We need to see that this passage is Jesus calling his people, his church body, those he has rescued, those he has saved, brought to himself. He's calling his people to action. The only way you can understand it is to see it in its context. So let's take a look at this. I would like you to turn back one page in my Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 18 is where I'm going to be focusing, just for a moment. Jesus has just asked his disciples who the people say that he is. And after a few suggestions, after they say that he lo- he's, they think he's one of the prophets, Jesus turns the question to the disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus has just told him that the father has revealed this truth to Peter. It's the only way that he could know it. And the truth is what? The truth is that Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Messiah. And the truth is people proclaiming it. That's the foundation of the church. How do we proclaim it? We preach it. We teach it, and we live it out before the world. you got to notice something here. This passage is the first time Jesus mentions the word church in the Gospel of Matthew. The next time he mentions the word word church is in our passage in chapter 18, verse 17, when he's telling us how to keep his church holy. You have to understand that between... This encounter with Peter and our passage, it's all about Jesus' church. Between Matthew 16, 18 and Matthew 18, 15 to 20, Jesus reveals to us how greatly he loves his church and the people that make up his church and to the extent that he will go for his church. In verse 21 of chapter 16, he says he will die for his church. He will sacrifice everything for his church. In verses 24 to 25, he calls people of his church to be self-denying. It doesn't mean you deny who you are as a person. It means you turn away from the sinner that you once were. It's the new birth. It's the regeneration that God has accomplished in our lives. See, Jesus is building his church with reborn people. People who do not act as people in conflict with one another, but people that live for one another. 
That's who he's building his church with. The 17th chapter of Matthew moves us from this introduction that Jesus will build his church towards a teaching on the new way of life of this new community of reborn people. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, none other than God the Father himself speaks to the disciples there at the transfiguration of Jesus. And what does he say to them? This is my son. Listen to him. Do as he tells you. Live your lives in obedience to him. And the interesting thing about the end of chapter 17, it's a, it's a story about the temple tax. What this is, is Jesus moving our ideas and our thoughts to the responsibilities that we as believers have in living out our lives before the world. Yes, he talks about the privileges of being sons and daughters, but with that come responsibilities. One commentator said that chapter 18 of Matthew, where our passage appears, is so important that he says, quote, it is the foundation for all other chapters in the entire New Testament. It is the single greatest discourse that our Lord ever gave on life among the redeemed people in the church. That's, that's high praise of one chapter of the gospel. Have we looked at it before in that way? Now, chapter 18 begins, verse 1. And I'm going to get to our passage, believe me. But you have to see this. Chapter 18 begins in verse 1. After all that Jesus has told the disciples what the church is about, self-denial, sacrifice, he's going to die for it. They need to be meek. They have responsibilities to live before the world as sons and daughters of Christ. After the father himself calls them to follow his son, what do they ask him in chapter, one, uh, chapter 18, verse 1? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let me paraphrase that for you. Hey, Lord, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Now, what are they thinking about? They thinking about everything that Jesus just said to them? No. They're thinking about themselves, their status, their position, their personal benefits. So Jesus begins this very important teaching in chapter 18 on life in the church. He begins the passage by taking a little child in his arms, probably a toddler, and he says to them, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Look, fellas, until you become like this child, you're not even going to get into he heaven. Now, what is it about a child that Jesus wants us to see. Think about those little children that were up here this morning in their parents' arms. Why were they in their parents' arms? Because they couldn't get up here on their own, could they? 
Oh, maybe they could have. They would have to chase them, probably. But think about this. Are those children, are they ambitious? Are they greedy? Are they looking for wealth and status? Looking out for their own personal gain or benefit? Do they look down upon others? Oh, I'm better than you are. I've got a blue crayon. You've only got a red one. Do they believe they have it all together? The sun rises and sets with them? Well, now that I think about it, maybe some of them do, right? I know mine did at one time. Are they all-knowing? Are they full of themselves? Have they got it all together? The example of becoming like a little child is all about the humility of believers. What does that mean? Well, the Word tells us, Micah 6, 8, Lord, uh, God says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. See, if we don't first understand that a believer has to be humble, none of the rest of this chapter 18 makes any sense. What does it mean to be humble? Humbling yourself is to make oneself lowly, to put yourself down below others, to debase yourself. That's the self-denial that Jesus was talking about in chapter 16. Paul says it well in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There it is. The humility of believers. That's where we must start in order to understand this chapter and to live out our lives in the church. We need to walk in the humility of Christ. We need to see others as more important than ourselves. We need to become like children of the king. Look, I've seen all the commercials. I am second. I am second. You're not second. You're last. If you're going to live as a child of the king, you're last. Put everyone else before you. In verse 5, Jesus transitions from talking about a little child. He transitions now to talking about believers that he sees as his children. Believers that have humbled themselves before God and answered the call of God to repentance and submission to Christ as king. They're now sons and daughters of God. They're children of the king. And Jesus is their loving and protective father. Let me show you this in verse 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name. Now he's talking about believers. Understand this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Listen. Dad's in the room. As a dad... I get what Jesus is talking about here. Some poor, misguided people, they don't like me. I get that. I come on too strong. My personality doesn't fit them. It's okay. I can live with that. I'm a big boy. I'll get over it. But mess with one of my children. 
mess with my bride, my family. And this dad's going to lose his witness. I'm going to lay hands on someone in prayer (laughs) to guide them in their mistake. But don't mess with my kids. Don't mess with my bride. That gets the hair up on the back of my neck. That's what Jesus is saying here. In this passage, in these verses, he's saying, don't mess with my children. Don't you cause one of my little ones to sin. And then he continues in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Yeah, I know they're out there. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. That word woe is really interesting. That means Jesus is like saying, oh, you can't imagine what's going to happen here. Woe to that person that causes one of my little ones to sin or leads them to temptation. Jesus is pronouncing a warning of the wretched, miserable fate that awaits the person that leads one of his children to sin. And verses 8 and 9 are a warning to us. You beware of the temptations that are out there. Look, you've heard, don't go through that door that leads to sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. You stay away from the door. Don't even look at the door. This is the father of believers talking to his children. This is how much he wants to protect his children from temptation to sin. Do you see what's going on here in chapter 18? But do children always obey warnings? How many of you are parents of teenagers? How many of you were a teenager? Do we always obey the warnings of our parents? What's to be done if someone falls? If one of the children of God falls to temptation and are led into sin, what is to be done? Well, he tells us in a parable. It's titled, The Parable of the Lost Sheep. Which, by the way, I don't like that title. And I'll show you why. Matthew chapter 10, verses, um, I'm sorry, 18, verses 10 to 14. See that you do not despise. That word despise means look down upon. Show contempt for. Remember, he's talking about someone that's fallen to sin. And he's not just talking to people outside the church here when he says this. He's talking about believers in the church. You know how we get sometimes, all high and mighty, I got it all together, I'm righteous, oh, they've sinned, look at them. They're going to get what they deserve. Jesus says, don't you do that. Don't you do that. Apostle Paul says something about that in Galatians chapter 6 in the first few verses. Be careful, he says, you might fall too. So Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That word perish means fall to destruction or ruin, the result of sinful living. It's not the will of Father that anyone falls to ruin, 
over sin. We've seen what happens to people that fall to sin. The lives are wrecked. Some of us have been there. And you have to look in this passage to that word astray. Now, it's important. I'm going to give you two verses of reference to right here beside this parable. The first one is Isaiah 53, 6. The second one is Matthew 24, 4 to 5. I'll give you those again in a minute, but understand something. This says the parable of the lost sheep. The sheep in this passage, we get this picture of this poor little lamb who's overeating clover or daisies or whatever he's doing. He's over there. His mama and the flock are over there. The shepherd's over there. He's just busy. Oh, he sees a butterfly. Let's go play with the butterfly. And he goes wandering away, and the flock is moving off. And all of a sudden, the little lamb looks around. He says, ah, mama. And he's lost. That's not what Jesus means here. The word is stray. Look in Isaiah 53, 6. Actually, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but write it down. Isaiah 53, 6. Listen, you've all heard this before. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus, a couple pages over in Matthew 24, he gives us an explanation of what he means by the word astray. Verses four and five. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. The word astray here means wandering away from the truth. The sheep in the parable of the lost sheep hasn't just gotten lost accidentally. He has been led away by untruth. He's wandered away from the truth and he's wandered away from the body of Christ. Willingly. Do you see the connection here in Matthew 18 with his previous warnings about leading his children to sin, about temptations to sin, and now the parable of the lost sheep where someone has given in to the temptations and went astray? What Jesus is explaining in the parable is the protection of a shepherd, the love and compassion of the shepherd the love and compassion that we are to have for any of our siblings in Christ that may or may have been led into temptation, led into sin. That's what I want us to see this morning. That's the focus of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. It's the great shepherd Seeking out to restore those that are lost. It's the love and compassion of the Father for his children. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus gives us a four step process. A four step process to seek out his child that's gone astray, to find them to rescue them, to restore them to the body of Christ. 
In verse, the first step is verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother back. You become aware of someone in sin or someone that's, that's falling to temptation. You're to go immediately to them in private, between you and the straying one alone, pursue them, plead with them, teach them, show them the word, love them, show them your love for them. Tell them not to do this. Listen, give them the word. God loves you. He wants you back. Don't go there. What's the goal? If he or she listens to you and repents, you've gained them back. Rejoice, rejoice, because heaven is rejoicing. The goal is restoration. But again, this is private between two people, you and the person. That's what Jesus calls us to here. But sometimes we know one-on-one doesn't work. They don't always listen to us. So Jesus gives us a second step, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, This is not to be a ganging up on the offender. But take two or three people with you, go to them, talk to them, plead with them, teach them, show them the word. Minister in the word of God and lead them to repentance, to restore them, the brother or sister, to restore them to the fellowship in the body. Here's where we go wrong in the church. We think, tell two or take two or three people with you. We think that's gossiping sometimes to two or three people. It's not. The only people that need to be involved in this or know about this are the people of God who are willing to be obedient and serve God and seeking this person out. That's the only people that need to know this. You gossip, now you're in sin. Somebody's got to come get you. The goal is restoration. Always, the goal is restoration with celebration if you're successful. If step two does not work, we go to verse 17. He gives us a third step in the process, a third attempt of restoring them back into the body of fellowship. Who does Jesus call to be involved in this step? The church. Every member that claims to be a member of the body of Christ, the church, Why does Jesus call this to happen? Because he wants his body fanning out, doing whatever is necessary, every single person that wants to serve God and is obedient to God, seeking out this brother or sister in prayer. He wants everyone empowered with his Holy Spirit to do this. This is his army, folks. The body is to be mobilized and sent into action to restore his straying child back to the flock. But even sometimes this still does not work. And it's heartbreaking. The sinner's heart becomes hard. There's no human action that will overcome it. It's now a battle that can only be won by God himself. That's where the fourth step comes into in the second half of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Treating someone like a Gentile or tax collector is to treat the unrepentant person that is defiling the body of Christ in sin as if they're a non-believer. That's what he means. We're to treat them as if they're no longer a brother or sister in Christ. Because listen, they are not just rejecting us. They're not just rejecting the church. They are denying Christ. And Christ gives us a command that his church is to be kept pure and holy, and he means it. Churches that fail to do this are sinning against Jesus. Please understand No one in the church wants to be a part of this. No one wants to do this. The leadership of the church doesn't want it to get this far. That's why steps one to three are so critical. That's why we have to be obedient and follow this process. Every single one of us that calls himself a child of God has to be able and ready to do this. One of my pastors, fellow pastors, recently when we were discussing this passage, he said this, if we've gotten to step four, it's no longer our fight. It's God's fight. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. If we've been faithful to the first three steps and it's not working, the person has not repented, they've not been restored, then the only thing to do is to turn it over to Jesus. But we keep praying. We keep praying for the great shepherd to find his straying sheep, to restore them. We're the body of Christ. We need to understand that we're in Christ. Christ is in us. We're all connected by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? Do you understand that this morning? If one of us suffers, the body suffers. If Christ grieves, the body grieves. And Christ grieves over any one of his children that has strayed from the truth. We're to act as if this is a member of my own, our own family. Look, if I'm a dad and one, I know one of my children is straying, what kind of a dad would I be if I didn't go after them? If I become aware of a predator after my children, I'm going to war. If one of my children wanders from the truth, I'm not sitting back and saying, que sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Hopefully they'll come back one day. They've been taught well. Let them do their thing. Oh, they're just sowing wild oats. No. No. If one of my children wanders, is led into sin, is strayed, I'm mobilizing I'm calling every one of my church family to come alongside of me. Help me. Go get my kid. Assist me in this. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. That makes you their uncles and aunts in Christ. They're your blood. Seek them. Rescue them. Love them. Care for them. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this passage in Matthew that's often called the discipline passage. 
Matthew 18, 15, 20 is not about punishment. It's about compassion and love, care and protection. It's about saving our loved ones from destruction. It's a search and rescue operational manual for the special forces of Christ. That's why Jesus affirms that our decision to do this is in obedience to his command and is being directed in heaven. That's what verses 18 to 20 mean. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all the angels of heaven are behind this. This process is initiated and directed by the kingdom of heaven. But this isn't the end of the process. Look what follows the discipline passage. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. I want to read the first two verses of this passage from the New American Standard Bible, and then I'm going to close. I think you'll get the drift of the purpose of Jesus in ending this parable. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I I forgive him. Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You see, mercy and forgiveness are limitless. Forgiveness is the last word. In Christ, we have received extreme grace. We are to be people of extreme grace. That means when the praying member returns, if if they ever return, but when they do, it could be years down the road, but when they return, we are to thank Jesus, we are to rejoice and welcome them back with open arms and praise and thanksgiving. Folks, we talk a lot about the body of Christ, but this is the body of Christ in action. We're called to care for, to protect, to serve, and to pursue one another as if we cannot live without each other. We need to elevate the significance of membership in the church, not just in being a part of a club, but being a part of a family. To a level that we can say to one another, if you wander from the Lord, I'm coming after you and I'm not resting until you are restored. And we have to be willing to say to one another, if I wander, if you see me wandering, come after me. Love me. Seek me. the way my Lord and Savior would seek me. We have to live life in the church as if Jesus is living in us. That's the kind of life that Jesus calls us to in his body, the church. My question for you this morning, are we ready to live it out? Let's all stand this morning. I'm going to call the worship team forward. This morning, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture from Colossians. That's going to be our prayer. So bow your heads with me. And let's meditate on this word from God. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, 
patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.